0: Impact Lab, connecting social entrepreneurs, nonprofit professionals, tech innovators, and activists with ideas and tools that enable their organizations to make the strongest possible impact. Today's guest is Richard Weller, professor and chair of landscape architecture at the University of Pennsylvania. Richard is the lead author of Atlas for the End of the World, a series of maps that detail the conflict between urbanization and biodiversity. Thank you for joining us. This is your host, Lynette Zimmerman, broadcasting from Philadelphia. Today's podcast is powered by Impact Tap, sharing social good through new media. Find out more at theimpacttap.com. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. We are thrilled to have you on the show. Sure, you're welcome. Now, as our listeners heard in the introduction, you are the lead author of Atlas for the End of the World which is an online project that maps the conflict between urbanization and the world's biodiversity hotspots. Uh, Now, I understand the project is partly designed as a response to the first ever atlas, which was published in 1570. Now, this showed Europe's reading public all of the rich and biodiverse regions that were ripe for exploitation. Now today we look around us and we are watching these blocks of ice the size of Delaware break off from the Antarctic ice shelf and rates of extinction of the world's flora and fauna accelerate. You know, we're coming face to face as a species with the consequences of our behavior. Now I'm excited to learn from you how the project was conceptualized and what shaped its scope.
1: Uh, The project was conceptualized and inspired by the fact that we're uh, about two or three years away now from the end of what is called by the United Nations the decade of biodiversity and one of the key features of the decade of biodiversity which perhaps listeners are not familiar with is uh, a set of biodiversity global targets and those targets are administered by something called the Convention on Biological Diversity which is headquartered in Montreal as a branch of the United Nations and it administers a convention to which virtually every country on earth is a signatory so every country on earth bar the United States and one or two others has agreed to meet these biodiversity targets and the key figure the really important number that everyone's agreed on is that we will collectively protect or have legally protected 17% of the world's terrestrial surface area by 2020 and 10% of the world's oceans by 2020. So, it's a, you know, this piece of research is really about that. But the way we've structured it and developed it with all the visuals and the writing and some of the artwork is to make something that is poetic and compelling for, for, for readers, not just a, a dry scientific report or an audit of land use.
0: I think you just brought up a, a great point that uh, I wish to expand on, and that's the visualization component of the crisis itself. Uh, the maps uh, that you've created are showing a stunning degree of detail, depict how isolated pockets of conservation are scattered around the world. What is the visualization component of the project ultimately trying to accomplish, and who is your audience? Who are you trying to reach?
1: Um, Okay, the first part is the, let me just break down the visualizations for you. The project begins with an image of the earth as a whole, and on that image of the earth, you know, you typically see the beautiful blue marble and it's ooh and ah, and it's a lovely thing. But that, that particular image of the Earth from from you know thirty six thousand miles away in space actually conceals a lot of the reality of the things that are actually happening to the Earth system. Anyway, we made an image where all we've done is we've deleted all of the land that is not protected, and it gives you a very su- sort of surprising image of the planet because you just see. this archipelago of small protected areas and what you notice is it literally is an archipelago they're all disconnected from one another and so we decided to then zoom into some of these archipelagos some of these islands of biodiversity in particular the ones in the world's so called hotspots which are, you know the scientific community has agreed that these are the most valuable parts of the planet and there's 36 of them 36 regions where the world's most valuable genetic inheritance exists. So we've zoomed into those areas and then we've done land use mapping, which shows at a much finer grain what land is protected, what land is agricultural, and most importantly, we've we've looked at all of the cities in those regions and looked at how those cities are growing, because often those cities, in fact 90% of them, are growing on a direct collision course with as I said, the world's most valuable biodiversity in these regions. And so, you know, we take the audio we take the reader sort of down from a planetary scale down to what is called an eco regional scale and a city scale, so that people can objectively and factually see what is protected and then we can measure well, how are we tracking in terms of reaching the United Nations targets by twenty
0: twenty? So you've touched on this this conflict of, you know, the world's urban centers and biodiversity. What data points did you look at when you were mapping this? What brings this all together?
1: Um, That's a very good question, and without getting into too much technical detail, um, not least of all because I don't understand the technical detail myself. I mean, I've conceived of the project and I I lead the research, but I have a team of people that are much better than I am at understanding the detail of computation and so on. But what we've effectively done, as they explain it to me and as I hope I can explain it to you, is we've worked with a data set which is developed out of Yale University by Karen Seto. Um, Professor Karen Seto, and she's renowned for developing a database that shows and can fairly accurately predict the way cities are growing. So she can look at a city today and say, well, that's what it is now. We think logically by extending the sorts of forces and settlement patterns of that city now to 2030, we can predict where it's going to sprawl into the future. So we've taken that data set but we've superimposed upon that another data set, which is all of the ranges of the world's endangered species. Uh, we've focused on mammal species because it's just it's, it's unwieldy to deal with every single species that's endangered, but mammals are a good sort of signature for if a mammal is endangered that you can, you can bet that that whole area is endangered. So, we've got a mapping of city growth superimposed on mapping of endangered species, and that flashes, then you get that sort of flash of conflict zones, which on the maps that people can look at on the website is always indicated by bright yellow.
0: Now, a product of this scale has to bring about new ideas, new concepts, new thoughts. And I want to hear from you uh, what you learned when, and what has surprised you through this process.
1: Well, just following on from the last question, I mean, it probably shouldn't surprise anyone, but it, it is alarming, at least, that we've, we've learned. One of the key findings of this research, over, uh, which we've been doing for the last three or four years, is that, of the 422 cities in the world's most valuable biodiverse regions are sprawling, and uh, 90% of them are sprawling, and that sprawl is in direct conflict with biodiversity. So that's not surprising because the world is urbanising and cities are growing, but it's certainly alarming. Um, It's also, I think... um, Again, not surprising, but it's, it's interesting to realise that many of the regions of the world that are signatories to the Convention on Biological Diversity and therefore have agreed to reach a 17% protected area target are falling well behind. And this is tricky because a lot of these parts of the world are, you know, they're difficult places. They're, they're, there's corruption, there's vested interests, There's Indigenous groups who also have very strong um, alliance allegiances to these landscapes. There's the NGO, Global Conservation Community, and they're all trying, I suppose, to get it together and protect these areas before we lose them. But um, it does seem to be a losing battle, and and without being alarmist about it, um, it's an issue that we believe shouldn't be couched in alarmist terms, actually. We come at this from the design point. We believe that if we apply design intelligence and planning intelligence to these parts of the world, we can better grow. Cities can grow, their economies can grow, but that needn't happen at the expense of biodiversity.
0: Uh, that's an interesting point of view, coming at it from the design aspect. Is there any room for hope? Is there any optimism here?
1: Um, I think absolutely there is, and I, I mean, we've called it Atlas for the End of the World, which is actually, if people read the essay in, in, on the on the website, they will realise that that's slightly tongue in cheek. And I, I don't think that the environmental movement has succeeded over the last fifty years in scaring everybody. I think people are uh, world weary now with with the constant sort of. Um, cry of, of imminent apocalypse I do believe optimistically that humans are becoming increasingly aware of their circumstance and these things don't happen quickly I mean we're talking about history as, and history doesn't move I mean things can happen quickly consciousness can change and there can be political revolutions but the environmental revolution if you put it that way is just developing momentum. I think it'll work its way throughout the 21st century. And my my view is that we're in a century of urbanisation. And that's a scary thing because you look around the world and you see all these cities being built. But it's actually a good thing in the sense that we're getting people off the land. Agriculture becomes increasingly technological. And as people move into cities, the population growth rate drops. That's a fact. People living in cities do not have so many children for a whole range of reasons. So eventually, as the world population urbanises this century, we're going to reach a point where population will stabilise. And that's going to be an incredible moment in history. For the first time in a long time, population will be stable. And I think With increasing environmental consciousness, a stable population sometime toward the end of the 21st century, with the technological agricultural landscape and a better understanding of how the Earth system works, um, and all of this pressured by climate change, my optimism is that humans will realise that the planet is a design problem and we have to, you know, literally, we have to get our shit together and treat it as a garden and, and... and look after it. We can't just continue to exploit it. And that's not a moral position. That's just that's just self-interest. If we want to survive as a species, we have to look after that which nourishes us.
0: Well, I, I look forward to that phrase sticking in our social world, and that's uh, we have a design problem. <laughs> we don't have an end-of-the-world problem. We have a design problem because we need our creative people around this, and it's something people can attach themselves to and understand and cut right. through
1: cut through the noise well that's a, that's exactly right and it's also this piece of work is really a plea to people in people who have some power and the wherewithal and are educated and have design skills and planning skills and political acumen and so on to to get out there into these parts of the world and make a difference. I mean that's that's also what this is about. It's a it's actually a call to the professions who are involved in shaping the built environment and 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 landscape and so on um, to move beyond um, just providing services for the rich developed first world, which is really what they do at the moment.
0: Well, to all of our listeners who are the creatives and those inspired by them, uh, how do they reach you, Richard? How do they talk to you more about this?
1: Um, they're very welcome to talk to me anytime. They can always contact me at the University of Pennsylvania, where I'm based, or they can look at the Atlas online and send me an email, and I'm happy to answer any questions or engage in any level of discourse about the project.
0: Fantastic, and that's Atlas for the End of the World. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much.